in Matthew chapter 12. And we're going to continue today. It actually uh, is a great text for a 4th of July weekend because it gets into some uh, national issues, and we'll talk about that. Um, But just to set the context for Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus has cast out a demon, and the Pharisees conclude that he has cast out a demon by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, you have committed the unpardonable sin, which is uh, rejecting the obvious, glaring truth that Jesus is the Messiah and attributing his work not to God, but to Satan. So at this point, the leaders of Israel have rejected their Messiah. So Jesus tells a parable about an exorcism. Here it is. Matthew 12, 43 through 45. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. All right, so the demon is cast out of the human being, and it's looking for another place to go. It's going through the desert. It can't find any other person to possess. Verse 44, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, meaning the man that I was cast out of, I'm going to come back and possess him. And when it comes, it finds the house, now here's the key, empty, swept, and put in order. The man's life is now empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now, This is not a passage about how to do exorcisms, right? Seems like the the church kind of goes in pendulum swings. And boy, today, uh, the American church is on a pendulum swing talking about demons and spirit of this, spirit of that all the time. And oh, here's a passage on demons. Let's turn this into a manual on how to cast out demons. It's not a manual on how to cast out demons. The purpose of of this is a parable to explain the generation that Jesus lived in that just rejected him. So also will it be, this is a parable, there's an analogy going on here, so also will it, what, this whole analogy, will it be with this evil generation. This is a picture of the generation of Jesus' day and as you're going to see, hey Jim, how are you? You don't have to bow. No, thank you. Okay, thank you. (laughs) Nobody was listening. They're all just watching me kick this thing over. Okay, this is a parable explaining a generation, the generation of Jesus' day, and it could be describing our very day too, right? So a little word of interpretation. When you interpret a parable, you have to ask, What's the main point? Okay. Sometimes you can get so caught up in the details that you miss the big picture. So when you interpret a parable, the first question is, what's the main point? Let's crystallize that point and then apply it. Okay. 
So what is the main point here? Well, the generation that rejected Jesus is like the man. He's demon-possessed. The demon is cast out of him, and while it's cast out, he gets his life together. Swept, put in order, but empty. This is a picture of a person who gets their act together. Maybe they go to AA and get sober. Maybe they go to Weight Watchers and lose weight. Maybe they go to the gym and get in shape. Maybe they get financial counseling and they get their financial act together. Their life is clean and in order. The only problem is it's empty. They've done this with self-effort and they don't have Christ. This is a picture of an individual who represents a whole nation who's gotten their act together but haven't received Christ. They're still empty. And what's the point? You can clean up your act all you want, but if you don't receive Christ, the last state of that person is worse than the first. What good does it do you to get your body in shape, to get your finances in shape, to get your marriage in shape, to get your kids in shape and die and go to hell? That's what he's saying. And his entire generation... They got themselves in shape. How did they do it? Well, the Jews of his day did it with the law. Take the law. Let's try to clean up our act externally. And they were a bunch of legalistic Pharisees who had their act together externally, but they were empty on the inside because they didn't receive Christ. And their, their final state was worse than they had begun. Now, what's the main point? Self-reform without receiving Christ may bring short-term benefits but will lead to ultimate destruction. Self-reform, cleaning up your act, without receiving Christ may bring you some short-term benefits but will lead to ultimate destruction. So let's apply that. That's the main point. I think we've interpreted the parable. Let's apply it now and get into some specific areas where um, we Americans can just become obsessed with cleaning up our act. All right, we love, well, we love self-improvement. Uh, we love Oprah. Right? We love getting on the Internet and finding seven easy steps to correct this or that. And We're really into self-improvement. In fact, you go to church today and you get a lot of sermons all about self-improvement. But Jesus says without, without Him, it's all for naught. So, Uh, Let me give you three things that may bring short-term external reform but will still lead to hell. Yes, we talked about hell around here because ultimately, what matters more than eternity? And by the way, um, Jesus keeps bringing up eternity, passage after passage after passage. After a while, you might think if this is an important thing. So here we go. Three things that might get your short-term act together, but in the long term will still lead to hell. First of all, willpower. Okay? It is absolutely amazing what the human will is capable of doing when it's focused. I brought some pictures today. Um, this guy's name, Leonid Rogozov. Rogozov. Anybody know who he is? You'd get a donut if you know who this guy is. No. He, what's that, a florist? 
Those are actually get-well flowers. Uh, Leonid is a Soviet, as you can see by the spelling of his name here. Um, he was in a Soviet uh, station on Antarctica. And um, they had a, a scientific station down there. And he was the medic. He was the only medic. Now, it's great to have a medic, but what happens when the medic's appendix bursts? What do you do? You know what he did? He performed an appendix, uh, appendicite, uh, what do you call it? Appendectomy, okay. He took that thing out, right? On himself. And you have to do it without anesthetic or else you fall asleep. So I Googled this picture, and all the other pictures were of him actually removing the appendix. They, he had a mask on, and he was laying in bed. They were taking pictures of it. Um, but he decided, either I die or I try to do that. It's amazing what the human will can do when it's forced. Right? Now, is Mary here today? Where's Mary? Hey, Mary, I've got a picture for you. Right? This is Gladys Burl. She's 92. Mary's 90 today, right? She's 92. You know what she did? She ran a marathon. You can still get around. I know that, okay? 26.2 miles. So you've got two years to train. <laughs> She's the... The oldest female to complete a full marathon, right? Isn't it amazing what the human will? You got it. <laughs> Mary got her driver's license. So you could drive the marathon, right? Right now, even as we speak, as I speak, uh, the men's final at Wimbledon is taking place. Djokovic versus Nadal, right? Um, this is from last year's Wimbledon. Uh, John Isner, U.S., Nicholas Mahunt, France. They played the longest match in history. Um, I didn't know this, but every set, up until the fifth set, you play a tiebreaker. But in the fifth set, you got to win in games. And the final set went 68 games to 70 games. Okay? 11 hours of tennis. It took them longer to finish the match than it took for Gladys to run the 26-mile marathon. Okay? Again, willpower, the human body and the human mind can do amazing things when it sets its mind to it, okay? Um, now, let's apply that to religious disciplines. This is uh, Simeon Stylites. He lived back in the 4th century. Um, he was one of these pole sitters. He lived for 40 years on top of a pole. He believed that uh, he was a Gnostic. Spirit good, body bad. So let's expose my body to the elements. He ate worms and insects and uh, beat his body. Um, and I'm sure there was a little mixture there of uh, trying to earn his way to heaven. Okay. 
he must not have gotten Paul's letter to the Colossians, where, um, actually, I didn't put it up here either. I didn't get Paul's letter to the Colossians, but let me read Colossians 2.23. Colossians 2.23 says this, these, and he's referring to ascetic practices. Ascetic practices are harsh treatment of the body. Colossians 2.23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What does that mean? You can beat your body all you want, but the problem is a sinful heart. You may even restrain the sinful heart, but what we need is a changed sinful heart. Right? What we need is Christ to remove our sinful heart and give us a heart of flesh. That what it, that's what it means to be born again. You are given a new heart that desires to obey. Not perfectly, but there's a new desire. You see, we also need not a good effort at being righteous, but we need perfect righteousness. This guy spends all his life trying to earn his way to heaven, beating his body, and then he finds out he's still not righteous enough to get into heaven. Christ came to give you that perfect righteousness that he lived. He lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, And the gift of the gospel is when you trust in him. When you stop trusting in yourself and you trust in him, he gives you his perfect righteousness so you're accepted. And on top of that, he changes your heart. The parable of the uh, Pharisee and the tax collector. Here the Pharisee goes to the temple and prays to God, I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Imagine that. Two out of seven days, you don't eat anything. That takes a lot of effort. And he tithes everything he has, probably on the gross, not on the net. Some of you, that went right over your head. But he's a tither, he's a faster. But now, next to him is his tax gatherer. But the tax gatherer, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. What did he offer? Nothing but his sin. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? Because he was trusting in Christ. And Christ gave him the perfect righteousness that he needed. And God declared him just, perfect. Okay? So, um, all that to say, the human will can do amazing things but it can't restrain the sinful heart. And and it can't produce enough righteousness to get you into heaven. That's why Christ came. So, sure, clean up your act. Better to to try and get your body in shape than to to let it totally go. Better to get your finances in shape than to, you know, uh, be in debt. But none of that will get you into heaven. So we talked about self-will or or the the human will or willpower. Now let's talk about a corporate issue here, how to get the country in shape. Let's talk about government. Government is one of those things um, that can get the house in order, sweep it clean, and so forth. Um, 
Romans 13, 4 says this, for he, the, the governing authority, and by the way, when Paul wrote this, it was Nero who eventually killed him. For he, the governor, is God's servant for your good. And what that tells you is government is God-ordained. There's three institutions that God has ordained, the church, the family, and the government. Okay? It's good. God, he, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. I take that to mean he has been given the power of capital punishment, and he bears arms to protect the nation. Right? Government is good. It keeps society in order. For he is the servant of God. All right? He's been ordained of God. An avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Government is meant to clean up the act of the citizens. It's God-ordained. Okay? Now, um, here's what I want to do. I want to give you kind of a little mini-theology of this whole issue of well, what, what is the relationship between the church and the state. Right? How involved should Christians in the church be in political things versus not be? And uh, I want to give you two views um, by two men that I highly respect. Okay, Wayne Grudem, who wrote The Systematic Theology, and he has written uh, another book I'm going to tell you about, and John MacArthur. Now, these two are friends. Um, these two guys I highly respect, but they disagree with one another in the issue of how involved should Christians be in government. I'm going to present both views to you. Okay? First of all, let's talk about Grudem. Grudem's got a new book called Politics According to the Bible. Um, and basically what Grudem does is he says, let me give you five wrong views of um, how Christians should, should think about um, government. Okay? Five wrong views about Christians and government. He says one is that the wrong view is that government should compel religion. This is wrong because what this is is Sharia law. You know, this is the Muslims saying um, there is no difference between the church and the state and you better do it or we kill you. Right? This, is, uh, this is why the pilgrims fled to America. So this is wrong. Second wrong view. Government should exclude religion. That's communism. Right? The state is all there is. Third view. All government is evil and demonic. There are some, uh, there are some theologians who basically say, ah, the government is run by Satan. Uh, be involved in nothing but the church. Don't even vote. Don't, don't be involved. And uh, he takes this view to task because Romans 13 just said that the government is ordained of God. It's not an, uh, it, it can be evil, but the institution itself is not evil. Then the fourth wrong view, he says, is this. Do evangelism, not politics. Now, he portrays MacArthur as holding this view. Okay? So he would say, just preach the gospel, don't, don't worry. Uh, or he would say this is a wrong view that, that MacArthur holds to. I'm not so sure he gets it right. Okay. Then the, the fifth view is do politics, not evangelism. And I don't know anybody who holds that view. Right? Well, what's Grudem's view? Grudem's view is that Christians should have significant Christian influence on government. Right? That we should be politically aware and know what we're doing and vote and, and uh, know what the issues are. Okay? Now, let me give you some objections that people might raise to Grudem's view. And then let me try to answer them as Wayne Grudem. Okay? So here we go. Uh, some people who would object 
to, to Grudem's view, which is this, we're to be significantly involved in, in uh, influencing the government, somebody might object, the pulpit is not a place to endorse candidates. Grudem would agree with that. I would agree with that. The pulpit is not a place to put up your poster of your candidate for whatever party um, you're endorsing. All right? But Grudem would say, there is a place for shedding biblical light on matters of ethics and morality that overlap in the world of politics. You know, um, is abortion purely a political issue? Or is it not first a moral issue that the church needs to speak about? Is homosexual marriage purely a political view? Or is it not primarily a moral view that the church needs to make clear? Even war, or a particular war, is it purely a political view? Or is it not first a theological view that needs to be spoken of? So uh, Grudem would say, I agree, the pulpit is not a place to endorse candidates. But it is a place to shed biblical light on the, on the issues of the day. Second objection, you can't legislate morality. I think Grudem would answer that by saying every single law that's ever been passed legislates morality. The law against murder is legislating the Sixth Commandment. The law against um, stealing is legislating the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal. The law against uh, perjury is legislating the Ninth Commandment, that you're not to bear false witness. For some reason, we're fine with legislating those laws, but when it comes to legislating protecting the baby in the womb, then, oh, well, we can't legislate morality. Or whether homosexual marriage is right or wrong, oh, we can't legislate morality. Well, who gets to determine what we can legislate and what we can't legislate? Now, I would agree that we are not to legislate church doctrine. You must be a five-point Calvinist or you're 30 years in jail on bread and water. Now, Calvin might have instituted that, but um, no, I don't think we should institute church doctrine, legislate church doctrine, but we do need to speak about morality. So uh, that's a, a second objection. A third objection that people raise. Nowhere did Jesus or the apostles try to bring about change through government. It's absolutely true. The government, though, that Jesus and the apostles were under is a little bit different than a democracy. In a democracy, first of all, the Bible says you are to obey the civil leaders. And the government we're under says we want your influence. We want your vote. We want you to influence us. So we would be disobeying Scripture if we didn't try to influence the government. So you have to ask, is the Roman system under which Jesus and the apostles were under the same as a democracy? And when under a democracy, the democracy says, we want your influence. And to not give your influence is to disobey the government, which is to disobey Scripture. You follow that? Okay. Um, number four, laws can only change people externally through threat of punishment. Absolutely true. That's all a law can do. Obey the speed limit or get a ticket. Don't steal, kill, murder, rape, or you will go to jail. That's all a law can do. But is changing people on the inside salvation the only thing we're to be concerned about? 
I always like to, to, to raise the question, what's the purpose of the parable of the Good Samaritan? The guy gets beat up and left for dead. The priest, the Levite go by, but the Good Samaritan helps him. Jesus says, he was a neighbor. Now go and, go and do likewise. Is there not just a place to do good, to love people by doing good? And if by casting a vote and by um, uh, you know, influencing your, your representative can do good to society and save lives and protect people, is that not what the Good Samaritan parable demands? Okay? So, um, you want to read Grudem? He hits all these things. All right? Now, let me, uh, I'm sure a lot of you are going, amen, amen. All right, now, let me, let me quote MacArthur. I think if you're a preacher of Jesus Christ and you're a pastor, you should be known for speaking the gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing else. It has no bearing on the kingdom of God who is the president of the United States. For a pastor to dabble in politics is to prostitute himself away from what his calling is and the only thing that makes a difference. Now, you might think he's saying, so therefore don't vote, don't be a... No, he's going to go on to say, now having said that, as a Christian, I must take every possible approach to uphold righteousness in society. So I, as a Christian, have to vote what I think, uh, what I think fits the biblical standard. But I understand that's a civic duty, and that's separate from my responsibility to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church needs to stay out of politicking. It needs to vote righteousness, and it needs to proclaim the gospel. Now, after studying both of these positions, you know what I've concluded? They both have a lot of good things to say here. Right? In fact, I'm not so sure they even disagree. In fact, I think they agree in essence, but disagree in emphasis. Okay? I think it's possible to do both of these things. To not endorse candidates, to biblically inform people about the issues of the day, and not be known primarily as a political uh, arm of the Republican or the Democratic Party. Oh, it's a tough line to, 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 to walk. But I think MacArthur gives a good, uh, a, a good word here. Be careful that you are not primarily known as a political entity. Your primary goal is to proclaim the kingdom of God. Right? And how that all works out is, is, a, is a difficult, fine line to walk. But back to our text. Back to our text. Let's say there was a massive political shift in this country. And um, originalist judges were appointed to the Supreme Court. Roe versus Wade was overturned. The economy was booming again. The stock market was flourishing. Happy days are here again. But if all that took place, and Christ was not received on a massive scale, we'd all still go to hell. That's the point Jesus is making. There's a place for politics. There's a place for legislative reform. But if you don't fill your heart with Christ, you still die and go to hell. 
That needs to be our primary issue. Okay? I'll give you one more thing that uh, can be looked at as sweeping the house clean, getting your life in order, but not receiving Christ. And that has to do with preaching itself. I'm going to call it user-friendly preaching. Okay? User-friendly preaching. Do you know that within some of our lifetimes, we have seen the fundamental destruction of gospel preaching? That's a big statement, isn't it? Um, Here's how the gospel has always been preached. Before people will understand the good news that a Savior has died in your place to pay for your sins, you first need to understand the bad news that you are a horrible sinner who deserves eternal damnation. Right? To preach the grace without the law, to preach the good news without the bad news, why would people think it's good news if they don't first know that they are condemned sinners? Now, how do people realize that they are condemned sinners? Well, Scripture tells us. Romans 3.20, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through law, through God's law, comes knowledge of sin. It is the proclaiming of the law, proclaiming the law, and that you need to keep it perfectly or you will go to hell. It is through the proclaiming of the law that we have a knowledge of sin, and then we go, I can't keep it perfectly. I need a Savior. And then the good news that Christ died for you makes sense. Now, the gospel has always been preached. First, the law condemns, and then the gospel rescues. And the law is preached in such a way that that you are told you need to keep it perfectly. Jesus said, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard outside of Christ, if you want to get into heaven apart from Christ, the standard is keep God's law perfectly your entire life without one violation, or you are condemned before a holy God. That's not preached today on a wide scale. What we have bought into is what we call user-friendly sermons. The law is preached not as the terrifying standard to show you your need for a Savior, but it's taught as helpful tips for a better life. We go to church, kind of like you know, going on the Internet and finding, uh, finding some wonderful tips for a better life. We go to church, and the pastor's supposed to give us seven tips for a better marriage, how to get your finances in order, okay? In other words, the law is no longer condemning us. It's helping us. And then when people receive Jesus, they're not receiving Jesus as Savior. They're receiving Jesus as life coach. Okay? Oh, I like that Jesus. He He has all these helpful tips to help me live a better life. That doesn't save you. It creates a bunch of people who like church, who like the Bible, and like Jesus, but they've never seen their rebellion against God. And it leaves them with their house swept clean, put in order, and empty and hell-bound. Let me just show you how far out of context we are when it comes to preaching. Spurgeon said this. By the way, there's a picture of Spurgeon. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. 
for if it lessens for it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary, its most powerful weapon, when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace until they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary and blessed purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. You need to tremble before a holy law, before you will understand the, the goodness of God's grace. We'll skip his second quote. Beza was Calvin, uh, Calvin's successor. He says this, The law leads us to Christ in the gospel by condemning us and causing us to despair of our own righteousness, like the, the tax collector in the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Ignorance of the distinction between law and gospel is one of the principal sources of abuse, which corrupts and still corrupts Christianity which corrupted and still corrupts Christianity. Wesley, we heard about him a couple weeks ago. Right? Before I can preach love, mercy, and grace, I must, must, must preach sin, law, and judgment. In writing to a young friend, he went so far as to advise preach 90% law and 10% grace. You say, well, that will lead to legalism. No, it won't. It will lead to grace. Martin Luther, the first duty of the gospel preacher is to to declare God's law and show the nature of sin. Now look at this. Satan, the god of all dissension, stirs up daily new sects. Right? So, oh, what are these what 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 sects is Satan stirring up? And last of all, he has raised up, raised up a sect such as teach that men should not be terrified by the law, but gently exhorted by the preaching of the grace of Christ. That's today. You go to church, when's the last time you were terrified by the preaching of the law to show you your need for a Savior? Luther says Satan has brought that about. P.T. Forsyth, our churches are full of the nicest kind of people who have never known the despair of guilt or the breathless wonder of forgiveness. Mike Horton is a more modern-day guy. You can tell by the colored picture. Right? Much of the evangelical preaching with which I am familiar neither inspires a terror of God's righteousness nor prays for the depths of God's grace in his gift of righteousness. Rather, it is often a confusion of these two so that the bad news isn't quite that bad and the good news isn't all that good. And some of you go, I've never heard this... It, because we have wholesale turned the law into nice tips for a wonderful life, not that by which you will be judged with a perfect standard on Judgment Day. Here's a guy, John MacArthur. Grace means nothing to a person who does not know he is sinful, and that sinfulness means he is separated from God and damned. It is therefore pointless to preach grace until the impossible demands of the law and the reality of guilt before God are preached. So what does this mean? It means that, you know what, if you've been brought up in one of the churches that all they do is they preach the law and as nice, helpful tips, and you've never seen that you are a rebel 
before a holy God and that you deserve damnation? Rather, if you just see the Bible as a, 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 a you know, self-improvement book and Jesus as your life coach, you're not saved. You've been duped. You've been led astray. But when you hear God's law thundering at you, and Jesus says, here's the standard. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. There's the standard, perfection. Have you perfectly kept the law? Thou shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says, if you look lustfully at a woman, you have committed adultery. Have you perfectly kept that your entire life? Thou shalt not murder. And Jesus says, if you have anger in your heart, you've murdered. Have you kept that perfectly your entire life? Never having unrighteous anger. If not, you're condemned to hell. Thou shalt not covet. Here we are. We live in the most beautiful country in the world. Yet we go around grumbling about our lives. That's coveting. If you've ever done that one time, you have defied the holy God who gave you life. That's the bad news. Good news. I got good news for you. Good news. God so loves us that he became a man. And he said, I I could toast the whole planet, torch the whole planet, but I'm going to rescue. And what we need to be rescued are two things. Perfect righteousness and a perfect payment. I can't get into heaven unless I have perfect righteousness. And guess what? Jesus came to live a perfect life on on my behalf and your behalf. And then my sins where I've defied God, they need to be paid for. He was nailed to a cross. And your sins were paid for. You say, how do I get in on this? You stop being a Pharisee and trusting yourself. And you flee to the Savior and you trust Him. You place your faith in Him. And you get what He gave, what what, what He did for you. He lived the perfect life and died a perfect death. That's what we're going to celebrate with communion. That cup, it represents His shed blood. And when we drink it, We're we're, we're picturing the spiritual nourishment that he gives us. But that blood covers our sins. And when you trust in him, you are given that perfect righteousness that you need. He lived a sinless life. And you need his sinless life to cover you. The bread represents his broken body. And we take those in and he nourishes us and covers us. Let me have the worship team come up and those.